Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Confessions of an Atheist Philosopher, Part 2, The Making of Rage Against Religion, by Stephanie Ruper. My name is Stephanie. I was a committed atheist for almost my entire life. I studied religion to try to figure out how to have spiritual fulfilment without God. I tried writing books on spirituality for agnostics and atheists, but I gave up because the answers were terrible. Two years after completing my PhD, I finally realised that that's because the answer is God. Today, I explain how and why I decided to walk into Christian faith. Here at Seen and Unseen, I'm publishing a six-article series highlighting key turning points or realisations I made on my walk into faith. It tells my story, and it tells our story too. You can read or hear other parts of the story elsewhere on seenandunseen.com. Idiots, I mumbled under my breath. I was 14. I was in the local library, spending the day with a stack of books about evolution. I walked past a conference room where a small group church meeting was taking place. Idiots, I grumbled again, a little louder this time. Rage began to simmer in my blood. Religious people swore allegiance to an invisible entity for which there was absolutely no evidence. Actually, that demanded their fealty against evidence. It made me so mad. I was studying science because we needed to stick to the facts. If society was to move forward, we needed to leave our religious superstitions where they belong in the past. Twenty years and a PhD in religion and science later, I cringe at what I used to think and feel. I'm not upset with my former self. It wasn't my fault. But today, instead of fighting in the war between religion and science, I'm fighting to end it. Here's what I learned that changed my life. Many assume science and religion have always been at odds. But science grew out of the soil of Christian thought. To medieval Christian thinkers, nature was God's creation. They studied nature to glorify God and to nurture their own spiritual health. As William of Auvergne put it in the 13th century, studying the book of nature led both to the exaltation of the creator and the perfection of our souls. They also saw God as an all-knowing, all-powerful source of order. This predisposed them to look for overarching, universal patterns that would later become known as natural laws. Contrary to the common assumption that medieval thinkers were dogmatic, they were extremely humble about their truth claims, because they compared their ability to know to God's and found themselves wanting. So when Aristotle's systematic methods of observing nature were reintroduced to Europe in the 12th century, they seized the opportunity to enhance the rigour of their studies. As they began implementing Aristotle's techniques, 
they realised they could combine them with the platonic mathematics they had already been using for centuries. This was a powerful combination that resulted in uniquely accurate theories and predictions. It illuminated just how much order there was to nature. In fact, more than ever previously demonstrated. It also provided a way to formalise the study of nature into the methods we today recognise as science. It is often said that over the next few hundred years, scientists, then called natural philosophers, fought against the church for the sake of science, natural philosophy. But this is an anachronism. Philosophers did begin to debate the best sources of knowledge. There were some major conflicts. But the vast majority of these people continue to study nature as a way to know and glorify God as its creator. The supposed conflict between religion and science only really emerged about 150 years ago. In Victorian England, it was becoming increasingly acceptable to criticise the church. Most wanted to reform it, but a few began to want to defeat it entirely. At the same time, various areas of natural philosophy were proliferating into specific disciplines, becoming known as sciences. Some people, including influential scientist and public intellectual Thomas Huxley, who hosted an exclusive dinner club for advocates of naturalism called the X Club, saw this as an opportunity to discredit religion. One strategy was to unite the growing pool of various scientific disciplines under the umbrella of a single science that could be defined as oppositional to religion. Science was rational, so religion became irrational. Science embraced facts, so religion entertained superstitions. Science honoured truth, so religion enabled wishful thinking. The success of theories such as evolution helped lend credence to such claims. These naturalists began to argue that science doesn't just disprove specific notions, such as that the earth is 6,000 years old, but all beliefs in the life beyond entirely. Huxley and others also rewrote the history of science to make it seem like it had always existed and been conducted by free-thinking naturalists challenging the religious status quo. In Evolution and Ethics, Huxley declared, for example, that scientific naturalism took its rise among the Aryans of Ionia, and he described naturalism as appearing wherever in history traces of scientific spirit were visible. Finally, Huxley used his considerable influence both in the UK and the USA to push religion and religious people out of the sciences. As a member of the Devonshire Commission, and having several other prestigious roles and membership throughout his career, he strategically placed his naturalistic protégés in influential university positions, and he rewrote science textbooks and exams to exclude religious ideas, motivations and people. In a very short amount of time, Huxley and others succeeded at pushing religion to the margins of the sciences, not entirely of course, but enough to make a difference, and making it seem anti-science. I used to think that religion was silly and weak. I thought this view was rational and I was intellectually superior because of it. I now know I only had these perceptions 
because I was born into a specific worldview, in part manufactured by Huxley and others. By the same token, many fundamentalist religious people, while influenced by many socio-political factors, are anti-science in part because their forebears were derided as irrational and intentionally alienated from the sciences. Both sides of this supposed war have inherited simplified views of one another and are taught to fear and to hate. Without learning this history, most never realise what has biased their enemies or themselves. And virtually everyone in our society carries misperceptions about there being some kind of intrinsic conflict. When I tell people I have a PhD in the relationship between religion and science, most laugh and say, but is that one? There is, and it was once beautiful and harmonious. The truth is that science is a way of investigating the order of nature, which can be done with or without belief in God. Today, many scientists eschew faith, but many others continue in the medieval tradition of studying nature as God's creation with great integrity, rigour and depth. We don't all have to return to such beliefs. But one medieval practice we may all do well to reclaim is to approach the world, ourselves and one another with deep humility concerning the limits of our knowing. Thrill and Trust in an Unpredictable World by Graham Tomlin Well, the football season has started again. The Women's World Cup has captured the imagination in a way that would have been unthinkable even a decade ago. For those of us who follow teams in whatever division, weekends suddenly change their character. Saturday afternoons, which over the summer were relaxed, easy, sunny days, suddenly, between 3 and 5 p.m., become filled with tense hope, expectation and despair. When your country makes it to a World Cup final, these feelings only intensify. So why is it that sport engages us so? Why do we bite our nails as the 90th minute draws near? We are only one nil up and the opposition threatens to score an equaliser any minute. Surely it is because this is one area of life where the outcome remains stubbornly out of our control. You can never quite predict the result of any match, and the best games always exist on that knife edge. This summer, after five Ashes tests, with five days for each test, three sessions a day, so 75 sessions of cricket in total, when the players went into the very last session with the result of a whole series still in the balance, it was the best of sporting enjoyment precisely because no one could predict what would happen. And the exceptions to that statement prove the rule, when the result is almost certain if Manchester City were to play Forest Green Rovers, for example, then it takes the fun out of it. In fact, much of the disillusionment that creeps into modern sport comes when money appears to skew the unpredictability of it all. When clubs are backed with the resources of an entire Gulf state in an attempt to control the outcome of a league by the use of something not intrinsic to sport itself, 
then something seems wrong. A couple of years ago, the German sociologist Hartmut Rosa wrote an intriguing book called The Uncontrollability of Life. Modern life, he argued, is marked by a drive to master and control as much of the world as possible. We manage the economy to try to ensure constant growth. We corral all the information we can so it sits in our pockets, available at any moment. We minimise risk by actuarial calculations. We develop algorithms that deliver exactly the content that the consumer wants. When we see a mountain, we want to climb it. When we get on the scales, we want to lose weight. When we have a headache, we want to get rid of it. Life has become an endless to-do list. We try to control life from birth through to death, through conception and abortion, managing our child's education to ensure success in life, even trying to control death by assisted dying that enables us to choose the time and manner of our own demise. And yet, he argues, it is the very unpredictability and uncontrollability of life that makes it interesting. It's when we're surprised by a sudden fall of snow or the smell of freshly cut grass or a joke that makes us laugh that we feel the delight and joy of life. If we were able to make it snow whenever we chose, as when a machine pumps out fake snow in a ski resort going through a warm spell, there is no great enchantment in that. If we knew the result of every football match before it started, there would be little point in playing it at all. We try to manage and control everything, but life and joy remain elusive and tantalisingly out of our control. You can pay for tickets to a concert, but never quite know whether the music will stir your soul or leave you cold. You can pay for a holiday, but you can't ensure it doesn't rain, that there isn't a ten-mile traffic jam on the way, or that the neighbours in the next apartment aren't noisy. Yet it is exactly the moments that we don't control that make life worth living. Chancing on an unexpectedly stunning sunset, meeting a friend by surprise, falling in love, hearing a song that touches your heart. And the point is, you can't control these things. If you could, they would lose their magic. And that, Rosa says, is the problem and tension at the heart of modern life. On the one hand, we try to control everything, to make the world safer, more fair, more predictable. And that's not a bad thing. We want to make the world more just, to eliminate random accidents or stupid mistakes. Yet the more we control, the more we evacuate the world of what makes it enchanting and enthralling. Yes, it's more than just unpredictability. We need, he suggests, to feel that the world out there responds to us, calls us, talks back to us in some way, so that we feel what he calls resonance with it. We need to establish a relationship with the world or events that happen to us that lies somewhere between us controlling everything or us being totally at the whim of what is out of our control. Perhaps in the infancy of the human race, we were totally at the mercy of climate, wild animals in fertile soil struggling to survive against the odds. We are in danger of going to the other extreme, of trying to manage everything so that the world becomes an inert, controlled, docile thing. 
Wisdom, it seems, comes from getting the boundary right between the controllable and the uncontrollable. It's a fascinating and persuasive analysis of modern life. But let me take his thought a little further. If we need the world to be responsive to us, for it to surprise us by talking back, as it were, it is hard to imagine such a thing happening if the world is simply an inert substance with nothing behind it. However much we may want a responsive relationship with the world, it is difficult to conceive of this on a purely materialistic understanding of things. For all the New Age talk of Mother Earth or the Gaia hypothesis, which attributes some kind of will and intention to the Earth, surely we can only have a relationship with the world if there is someone, not just something, there to have a relationship with. Some mind, heart or intelligence behind it all. After all, even the Greeks thought Gaia was not just another word for planet Earth, as modern ecological secularists have it, but a god who shaped the universe to her liking. If it's true that we flourish best when there is a resonant, reciprocal relationship between us and the world outside, then does it not make more sense to believe there is someone, not just something, out there calling to us, responding to us? Even more, if we are to establish a relationship with what is out there, rather than being at the mercy of it, or seeking to control it, then we need to be able to trust that what we are reaching out to has our best interests at heart. What if the world is a cold, heartless, meaningless place? What if there is no order or structure behind it? What if it is coldly indifferent to us and our plight? Rose's optimistic outlook beckoning us to resonance, a relationship of mutual discovery, able to be touched or moved by the world, seems to assume that what we will discover out there is fundamentally to be trusted rather than feared. This is where we Christians have something to offer. Not only do we say there is someone out there to talk back to us with whom we can resonate, but that that someone is fundamentally good because despite the confusion of the world, the mixed messages it sends us due to its brokenness, we have seen the clue to what lies behind the mystery in the face of Jesus Christ. Living in this unpredictable world, one where we cannot control everything, nor should we try to, means, as Rosa points out, learning to accept it, not getting frustrated when we can't control everything learning the ability to take the vagaries and vicissitudes of life as they come, without getting angry or annoyed. Yet we can only do that with a degree of confidence when we can trust that what is out of our control is ultimately under the hand of a God who has our best interests at heart. I may not be able to predict the result when Bristol City play on a Saturday afternoon. In fact, I'm glad I can't, as it would hardly be worth watching. But it makes a difference when I can trust that behind the changes and chances of what happens to us, and this thankfully stretches far beyond football, there is a mind and heart that knows me and cares what happens to me, and not just to me, but my neighbour and the future of the entire universe.
Self-Obsessed Isolation by Jonathan Aitken The sin of pride takes us into a sea of puzzles. Its choppy waters of contradictions and cross-cultural currents can be difficult to navigate. Is pride the worst sin, as learned Christian moralists have sternly proclaimed, from Augustine to Aquinas and C.S. Lewis? Or should we applaud many popular forms of 21st century pride? Pride drives parents to encourage their children, students to strive for better results, football fans to cheer on their team, and soldiers to die for their country. Black pride and gay pride have made millions of previously ostracised people more understood and accepted, rolling back yesterday's tides of bigotry and prejudice. How can the apparently good pride in these modern categories be squared with the condemnation from ancient Greek philosophers and Christian teachers down the ages that hubris or individual pride are not just bad sins, but the personification of evil? These are deep waters, Watson, as Sherlock Holmes might have said to his assistant. But they become easier to fathom if the most toxic element in bad pride is diagnosed. It is egotism with a capital E, perhaps better identified as rampant self-centeredness. Many walks of life tempt us towards self-centeredness, but some professions seem to attract more egotists than others. In this article, I will concentrate on those who make their chosen careers in the arena of public life, particularly politics. I can write about this notorious minefield of pride with some inside knowledge, because this was where I spent decades of my life climbing towards the top of the greasy pole, as Disraeli described political ambition. It was where I had a spectacular fall from grace, plummeting from rising cabinet minister to imprisoned convict. I now describe my downward spiral of this crash as a descent involving defeat, disgrace, divorce, bankruptcy and jail. The ingredients in this royal flush of crises were caused by pride. Without recognising the fault line in my personal and political character, a common failing in many prideful people, I was climbing well on Disraeli's greasy pole in the 1990s. I was in my fifth term as an elected Member of Parliament. I had held two portfolios as a Minister of the Crown. One was Minister of State for Defence, and the other was the powerful cabinet post of Chief Secretary for the Treasury. To make my head swell further, I was quite frequently tipped to be the next leader of the Conservative Party, and as a potential successor to Prime Minister John Major. The political graveyards are littered with the long-forgotten corpses of ex-future Prime Ministers. So these transitory labels should have made a wise man humble. In fact, it did quite the reverse. A combination of what Shakespeare in Hamlet calls the insolence of office and in Macbeth, vaulting ambition which o'erleaps itself, gave me a surfeit of hubris. Pride is the deadliest of sins, and I was bursting with it. Politically, I began to believe that I could walk on water. I took myself far too seriously, especially when I was made the target of a campaign by the Guardian. It does not matter now what the Guardian said in their attacks, 
because all their feelings of resentment about them have long since left me. Suffice it to say that, in a long series of articles, they made a number of allegations against me, some of which were true, some of which were untrue, and all of which were given a strongly negative spin. In the face of this campaign, I was full of prideful anger and went for the journalist's jugular. I initiated a lawsuit for defamation and announced my libel action in a ferocious television speech which contained the peroration, I will cut out the cancer of bent and twisted journalism with a simple sword of truth. These were recklessly insensitive words of pride which came back to haunt me. Where was I as a Christian when I was riding high as a politician? To put it simply, I called myself a Christian without actually being one. I was strong on the externals. I went to church regularly. I supported Christian causes and was a church warden at St Margaret's Westminster, the parliamentary church. However, I do not think I had understood the simple truth that being a Christian has little to do with external appearances and everything to do with an internal commitment to Christ's teachings. I probably bore a disturbing resemblance to the Pharisee in the Bible story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who go up to the temple to pray. Even if I did not boast about my external piety quite as loudly as the Pharisee did, the humility of the tax collector was far removed from me. I was certainly not saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Nor was I doing the will of the Father, especially when it came back to the libel case. In order to win it, I did something that was against the will of the Father. I told a lie. It didn't seem at that time a terribly important lie, at least in relation to the lies I was accusing others of telling about me. It was a lie about who paid a £900 hotel bill of mine at the Ritz Hotel in Paris while I had been a government minister. I told this lie. I told it on oath in my evidence in court. To my eternal shame, I even got my wife and daughter to back me up with witness statements supporting my lie. But then my opponents ambushed me in the middle of the trial with clear documentary evidence that I had told a lie on oath. My credibility as a witness was shattered. I had to withdraw the libel case, and within 24 hours my whole life was shattered. The rising cabinet minister had impaled himself on his own sword of truth with explosive and apocalyptic consequences. I was prosecuted for perjury, pleaded guilty at my trial in the Old Bailey, and by June 1999 I was in a prison van, heading for Her Majesty's Prison, Belmarsh, to serve an 18-month prison sentence. Having proved the truth of the old saying, pride comes before a fall, I had plenty of time to reflect on how it had happened, how it could have been avoided, and how I might prevent this deadly sin from resurfacing in my life. One key discovery was that pride had turned me into a self-obsessed loner. Despite an outward carapace of gregariousness and friendliness, I confided in hardly anyone. I made myself accountable to no one. Graham Tomlin hit this nail on the head in his 2007 book, The Seven Deadly Sins and How to Overcome Them, when he wrote, 
Pride is the most isolating of sins. The ultimate end of pride is loneliness. Once one has recognised and acted upon this wisdom, the chances of recognising and defeating the sin of pride when it tempts you are infinitely higher. I used to believe in an old line of verse by Rudyard Kipling. Down to Gehenna or up to the throne, he travels fastest who travels alone. Now I think differently. Conquering one's ego is no easy task. But if you make a determined effort to confide in and make yourself accountable to carefully selected friends, family members, colleagues or prayer partners, you will build, with their help, strong defences to the sin of pride. A Christian faith can be a powerful bulwark in strengthening these defences. I had never heard of, let alone participated in prayer groups or had a prayer partner or found a spiritual director until after my fall from grace. God has moved in his mysterious ways to bring these friends and protectors into my life to such good effect that I am now a contented priest and prison chaplain. Yet pride can still lurk as a dangerous enemy even among practising Christians. Pastoral ministry and preaching have their pride traps, but accountability and self-awareness can help to avoid them. If I ever receive a compliment on a sermon, I promptly recall the following story about John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. One day when he had been preaching in his home church of St Mary Woolnoth in the City of London, an exuberant member of the congregation fell at his feet as he came down the pulpit steps and gushed, What a brilliant sermon, Mr Newton! What a great sermon! John Newton responded, Thank you, sir. The devil himself told me that a few moments ago. The devil, as he surveys the 21st century landscape of what used to be called the seven deadly sins, must be rather pleased. These days, serious sinning is often equated with minor rule-breaking. If you can get away with it, you will not be seen by contemporary society as a sinner. Compliance has replaced conscience as the arbiter of what is right or wrong. Yet pride remains stubbornly out there, on its own, as a different and deeper category of sin. Don't worry about the distinction between good and bad pride. They are easy to separate, because the former are non-egotistical, while the latter are toxically absorbed with the self. The French language helpfully has two different words, fierté and orgueil, to make the division clear. Orgueil or self-centred, self-absorbed pride, is what C.S. Lewis rightly defined as the great sin, the utmost evil, the complete anti-God state of mind. Perhaps it takes a poacher who has been caught in this sin to recognise the magnitude of its destructiveness on all other relationship and on one's personal character and soul. Turning gamekeeper in order to defeat pride means spiritual discipline, accountability and prayer. Even so, the struggle against pride will always continue. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.